We are in Genesis chapter 35 today. And uh, if you were here with this last week, I think that Genesis chapter 34 is one of the most challenging passages in the book of Genesis. It's just, it's just such a mess. It's filled with so much sin, wickedness. And it's, it's, it's almost like you read something like that and you really hope that there's a rebound chapter coming, right? Where there's something more refreshing, something a little bit more maybe life-giving. And I think that's exactly what we find in Genesis chapter 35. But before you move past chapter 34, I, I want you to place yourself back in there for a moment. Because I, I think that as we last week, we looked at Jacob and we looked at his family, we looked at all of the mess, the brokenness of their lives, of their family, and I think we can all acknowledge that we've all been in places in our lives where we wish we could have a do-over. Where our failure is, it's so obvious, it's so big that it haunts us and we actually aren't even sure how we're going to truly be able to move forward, at least with any kind of confidence and any kind of courage. We can often feel so crippled by our failures, by our sin. And while the story of the Bible certainly highlights the failures of humanity and perhaps especially highlights the failures of God's people, it is really the story of redemption and renewal. And it's, it's the highlighting of the failures that reminds us that our need is outside of ourselves. That we, we can't fix the human condition, the human problem. We cannot mend the brokenness in ourselves, let alone the universe that surrounds us. And the story arc of the Bible is a story that moves us from creation to fall to redemption and then to recreation. And I think it's important to kind of put that big picture in your mind again. I really believe it's critically important to understand that framework of the Bible whenever you come to the scriptures. The story of the Bible begins with a picture of life and it ends with a picture of even greater life. The goal of God for his fallen creation is full and final renewal. It is full and final recreation. It's a kind of resurrection from the dead. We've looked at this throughout the book of Genesis, so let me give you a really brief recap because it's going to play into our perspective on this chapter here today. The story of the Bible begins with life, but it quickly moves towards death. It moves from faithfulness to failure, but then it quickly moves back from death to life. In the beginning, God created humanity to live, to enjoy life. It's God himself who breathes life, the breath of life into the, the lungs, so to speak, of Adam. And he lives truly the fullest sense of living in the very presence of God. And then we find out very quickly that God's good rules are actually violated and God did what he promised to do. If you eat of this tree, from the fruit of this tree, dying you shall surely die. That's how the Hebrew reads. And instantly, Adam and Eve in their rebellion introduced death not only into their lives, but into the fabric of creation. But almost right away, after the shame of sin is felt, after the kind of taste of death is experienced, the alienation from God... Almost instantaneously, God makes the promise of renewed life. And in the curse that he delivers to the serpent, in Genesis 3.15, he, he says to the serpent, and he says in, in effect to Adam and Eve, I'm going to place enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And he says to the woman in effect that you will have a seed. There's going to be one who comes from your line. He, listen, will crush the head of the serpent even though his heel would be bruised. So Genesis is tracing the plan of God to renew a people and eventually the entire cosmos through his power and by his grace. We've often seen this in strange but profound ways. We have seen this picture of death and life, of a resurrection 
picture in this in uh, the depiction of Abraham and Isaac, for example, Abraham, excuse me, and Sarah, who are old and infertile. They are past the age of childbearing. We see it in the pictures of the barrenness of the matriarchs, of Sarah, of Rebecca, and of Rachel, every single one of them unable to have a child, and their womb is depicted as a grave, as dead, as lifeless, but by the grace and power of God, God speaks and life comes forth. Here, this passage is going to highlight spiritual life. It's going to highlight for us a spiritual renewal, but it's going to do so through four funerals. We cannot properly understand God's renewing power unless we view it through the perspective of death. That the funerals that we see in this passage are pointing us forward to the life that is going to come through these deaths. There are deaths that give way to life. That is, by the way, the very heart and call of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Human failure is met by spiritual renewal by the power of God. Death gives way to life. And there are deaths that you must face in your life. Spiritual deaths. In order for you to experience the renewal in your life that God wants for you. So what does this look like? Or in other words, let me ask it like this. How do we experience spiritual renewal in our life? I want to look at it in two different, from two different angles. The first one is in the first 15 verses. Renewal requires rededication. I want to read those 15 verses. Let's begin. And we'll track through this passage together. It says, God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paran Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Here we have this picture of renewal, a covenant renewal that God is renewing with Jacob. But here we see Jacob is renewing his commitment to God. There is very much here a a rededication in the life of Jacob, almost a turning away from his sin and his past life and a turning to God. And remember, this is flowing out of the, the disastrous failure to obey in chapter 34, all of that, that mess of sin, God comes along and, and right after that mess of sin, God speaks and he speaks to Jacob a word of hope and a word of life. Notice that he does not come along and speak a word of condemnation 
Notice as he doesn't come along and speak a word of rejection, God's word is the word of eternal life to this man. And in the face of our sin and failure, our only hope is that God would come and meet us in our sin and failure and not speak a word of condemnation or rejection, but a word of hope and a word of love that God would give to us an invitation of both mercy and grace. And Jacob remembers the promise that he had made in chapter 28. That's what's so significant about this passage. If, if you went back to chapter 34, if you weren't here last week, all of the mess of Jacob's life can really be tracked back to one particular incident. In chapter 28, Jacob made a vow to God. He promised God that he would go back to Bethel, the place where God had originally met with him, that, that stairway from heaven to earth with the Lord standing above it and angels going up and down doing the bidding of God. But he had stopped short of full obedience to God. He wouldn't do everything he committed to do. He got lazy in his spiritual life. Maybe he felt like he'd done just enough. He got to the edge of the promised land, but instead of going all the way to Bethel, he stops in Shechem, and there we see this disastrous display of sin, not only in his life and his failure to lead, but in the life of his family. So here, God speaks and calls him to full obedience and this returning, it sets a new tone of repentance for Jacob's family that requires a rededication. So I think we see here three aspects, really, of what it looks like for anyone to experience renewal through rededication. And I hope for you today, listen, if you're anything like me, what happens in your life is that you begin at times to drift a little bit spiritually, you find yourselves maybe off a little bit in, in, the, in the wilderness. You find yourselves not as faithful, as devoted, and as committed to the things of the Lord. Maybe you're distracted. Maybe sin has, has kind of reared its ugly head and taken a hold of your life again. Whatever it is, I know you're something like me because you're human. You struggle to be fully committed to the Lord. And when you find yourself in that place, what you need to do is wake up and rededicate yourself, recommit yourself to the Lord. And that's what we see here. Three ways I think we see this taking place. First, here's how it happens in our lives. We look in and see our sin against God. That's the beginning place of all of our rededication. There has to be this, this introspection where we look at our lives and we realize that in our relationship with God, it wasn't God that moved. We moved. And we moved away from God towards something else. We moved towards sin. And in verse 2 to 4, what we see is this recognition, I think, and this repentance on the part of Jacob. Look at what it says. It says, so Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Here what we see is that Jacob, as an old man, he begins to do what he should have been doing all along, which is a great reminder, by the way. It's a great reminder that it's never too late to do what God calls you to do and to be who God calls you to be. Okay, you, you could be older and you could have drifted very far. You could have committed grievous sin in your life, but it is never too late to do what God calls you to do and to be who God calls you to be. There is fresh mercy for Jacob today, just like there is fresh mercy for you and me every day. And in verse two, men, I just want to encourage you. I, I leaned in hard to you men last week, but men, this is, this is the way we need to lead in our homes and in the church, right here, right? We are not going to have idolatry here. We are not going to put up with foreign gods here. We will not bow to any other God but the true and living God who is creator and king over all things. Amen? Okay, this is the way we need to be leading in our homes. Pushing the idols out, pulling our family, whether that's our nuclear family or our church family, toward worship of God. And look at what he does here. He says, purify yourselves. In other words, Sin, listen, sin makes us unclean. 
And death results from sin. So if you come into contact with death, that makes you unclean because you have come into contact with the consequences of sin. Now let me remind you, in the previous chapter, these men had come into significant contact with death. They had committed genocide on the Shechemites. They had deceived them and they had slaughtered them. It wasn't proportional justice. And then, remember what had happened. Uh, uh, the, the sons of Jacob had gone in and plundered all of the, 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 the spoils from all of these, these dead men and their, their homes that were left and all of the goods there. They took them all. There's a sense in which God is saying, listen, you are unclean. You have come in contact with the dead. And death, listen, results in sin. Purify yourselves. And, and here it's really... It's really encouraging what he does. He calls them to separate themselves. And I want to encourage you to see your sin as a means of bringing you back into the realm of death. Okay? The Bible, you can separate the Bible into, into different kinds of realms. Uh, there's the realm of life and the realm of death. The realm of life is always in the presence of God. The realm of life is always experienced in obedience to God. The realm of death is defined as disobedience to God, separation from God. These two categories, by the way, help you make sense of so much of the Bible, including the, the rest of the Torah, where you're going to see the words uh, unclean used frequently to describe things that are pushing life away and are representative of death. Anytime you pull yourself back towards sin, you are pulling yourself back into the realm of death. And I think there's a sense in which what what we see here is really what we see Paul saying in Romans 6, 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And notice here that he's not just calling us to separate ourselves from the world. No, we cut ourselves off from things so that we can devote ourselves to God. That's the issue here. Look what he says in verse 3. And let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. He's, he's wanting them to move back to worship of God alone, to Yahweh. And then verse 4. They gave to Jacob all their foreign gods that they had and, and the rings that were in their ears. Earrings are bad, wicked, sinful. Just kidding. <laughs> you see, what's going on here? He, he's telling them to change their garments. He's telling them to uh, put away their foreign gods and the rings. Where are they getting these foreign gods from? What is the deal with the earrings and the garments? Well, it's more than likely that these are at least part and parcel of the things that they've plundered from the Shechemites. They've grabbed their little household gods. They've, they've just grabbed them. They've taken the, the earrings and the garments that were in many ways associated with their pagan, idolatrous worship, and they've appropriated them into their lives. They've just kind of embraced. They're like, okay, this is great. We, we'll take all of their spoils, not even thinking about their connection to worship in the pagan realm. And he's, he's calling them to, listen, rid yourself of anything that is associated with idolatry, with taking on the ways of the world which are connected to the worship of the world. One commentator says this in defining idolatry, because I think that's, it's helpful for us. We often think of you know, idols as simply being um, physical uh, uh, gods made out of wood or stone, but it goes deeper than that. This commentator says, idolatry is any substitution of what is created for the creator. People may worship nature, money, mankind, power, history, or social and political systems instead of the God who created them all. And I think if we're honest, we can look around and we can see that idolatry dominates our culture. It's dominated human culture since the fall of man. But I also want you to see and believe that idolatry is a constant danger for the people of God. Idolatry is a constant danger for you. You and I, in this room right now, we may be worshiping idols in our lives right now without even realizing it. In fact, many of us are. 
the New Testament actually warns about idolatry. Think of what Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 5. I'll put it on the screen for you. It says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You see what he does? He says that idolatry is a matter of the heart. And it's tightly linked to all of these sins, but maybe, maybe most specifically to the issue of covetousness. Why? Because covetousness is wanting something to give you what only God can give you. It is believing that you'll find ultimate satisfaction, ultimate pleasure, ultimate joy, ultimate happiness if you only had this thing, this person, this job, this amount of money. It's the very heart of idolatry. Listen to what John says in 1 John 5, 19. And he says this, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Life, listen to the connection here. Little children, Keep yourselves from idols. Do you hear what he's saying? We know life. Don't go back to what's dead. <laughs> Don't leave the realm of life to go back to the realm of death. There's nothing good for you there. There's nothing beneficial for you there. There's only destruction. There's only heartache. There's only brokenness. I think it's appropriate that we ask ourselves the question, listen, where am I looking for things that are not God to do things that only God can do for me? So look at the habits of your life. Look at the way you dress. Let's use the picture of the garments here. Look at the ways of thinking that you adhere to. And ask yourself this question, is it any different from the idolaters who's worship, who worship their health, who worship their beauty, who worship their money? And if you find yourself doing or living, sorry, the way they do, or doing what they do here. Watch what they do here in verse 4. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. I love the, the NIV's rendering of this, I think, gets to the idea here, because this here is the first funeral in the story. The NIV says that Jacob buried them there. They get all their false gods together and everything that reeked of idolatry and they had a funeral, but they didn't have any eulogies. There's nothing good to say about these gods. Nothing good to say about what they've done in their lives. It was just, let's bury these things. Let's be done with these things. These things need to be buried because they're already dead. They got no life. Bury what's lifeless and life-destroying. Devote yourself to the God who is life-giving because he himself is alive. Secondly, look up and see God's grace towards you. Just really quickly here, notice what he does. As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. I just want to remind you that right here, God is doing simply what he promised to do. Jacob, I will be with you. I will go before you. I will protect you. I will provide for you. I, I've got you, Jacob. I told you this. And here what we see is that God is simply doing what he promised to do. And then Jacob comes to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. Finally, he's there. Finally, he's, he's at the place he said he would get, go to. He and all the people who were with him, and there he built an altar and he called the place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. This here is an incredible picture of Jacob taking his eyes off himself and putting them back on the God of life. Remember, God is simply doing what he promised to do, but I think finally Jacob is actually realizing that God is faithful to do everything he says he will do. 
And that's displayed. His eyes are are on the Lord. We see that because he builds an altar of worship. This is the natural response to seeing God's grace toward you. When you aren't destroyed because of your sin and instead you're given mercy and grace in spite of your sin or because of your sin, listen, the right response is always gratitude and praise. And here, the the language, the built-in altar to worship, it's worded the exact same way as earlier in the book of Genesis when speaking of both Abraham and Isaac, who did the very same things. It's kind of like Moses is saying, at last, finally, Jacob is walking in the footsteps of his fathers. He's turned from himself and his own selfishness, and he's now fixed his gaze on God. And you'll notice that he names the place El Bethel. Now, Bethel means house of God. So he's naming the place God, house of God. See, why, why is he, like, that sounds a little bit redundant. I think this is so intentional on the part of both Jacob and Moses. Because if you go back to chapter 28, When Jacob had this experience with God, when God came down, so to speak, from heaven to earth, when he he opened Jacob's eyes to see the spiritual realm and the sovereignty of God over all creation, do you remember what Jacob's response is? Surely God is in this place. This is the place of God. It is the house of God. And it's almost like, almost like he missed the point and he made it more about the place than about the person. But now... Now he realizes that the significance of the house of God is about the person of God, the presence of God. God is in this place. You can kind of hear, you know, if you think of Jacob's life, it's almost like he's missed the point of worship all along. You can almost hear that. You know, old 90s song playing in the background. You know, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. I'm not going to sing it for you. Where it's all about you. It's all about you. There is no renewal without a rededication of our worship to God alone. It is not enough to just bury the idols. There must be a a recommitment to our worship of the one true and living God. There must be a bowing to him again and again and again. All renewal flows from repentance into worship. And verse 8, it's it's interesting, another death. We have the death of Deborah, Rebecca's nurse. It's interesting, she would have been alive for about 180 years. She would have bridged the lives of the first two patriarchs. Think about this. And and here, one commentator, Alan Ross, says, her death reminded the people of the era that ended with the return of Jacob to Bethel. It's almost like there's closure. You're finally here. It's time to start a new chapter. It's like there's change in the air. Looking up and seeing God's grace towards you leads towards renewal, to change, to starting a new chapter in your life. The old is gone and the new has come and it's never too late to receive God's grace. Third, look out and see God's plan through you. Or maybe you could see it as this, see God's purposes for you. And in verses 9 through 15, here God speaks again to Jacob, and he's going to reiterate the promises of land, of seed, and of blessing that he has given to Abraham, to Isaac. Now they're being given to Jacob, reaffirmed. There is this kind of recommitment or covenant renewal that God is allowing to take place, but I want you to see how it begins. Renewal requires looking out to the calling of God on our lives. It can't just be inward and upward. It must also extend outward. The period of your your life is over Jacob. That's what he's saying here. Now it's time for you to be who I've called you to be. That's why he addresses uh, this name change. Now, if you look at this and you were here with us uh, for the last few weeks, you'll remember that God had already changed Jacob's name to Israel. 
This is simply God reiterating what is true. Your name is Jacob. Remember he wrestled with God earlier and God then changed his name to Israel. But here it's almost like God's saying, now finally we're at the place where the old is gone, the new has come. This is a brand new chapter in your life. You will no longer be this Jacob character, this deceiver, this trickster. You will be Israel. The renewed name signifies renewed purpose. And that very often requires a renewed dedication. I want you to notice the command in verse 11 that God gives to him. God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. Now where have we heard that language before? You could trace that all the way through the book of Genesis. Each of the patriarchs had the very same thing said to them. Noah had that said to him in Genesis chapter 9, but that has its roots and foundations back in Genesis 1:28, when God gave that command to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And what we are to glean from this, to take away from this, is that God is actually carrying forward the project that he began at creation through Adam, now through Jacob. In other words, Jacob is a new Adam, which is amazing because he, like Adam, is a sinner who is saved by grace and then is going to be used by grace. God comes to him and says, listen, I know all of your sin, I know all of your failures, and they are many and they are bad, but, but, you You will represent me in this world. I have a plan to renew a people and eventually renew the entire cosmos. And that plan includes you. It's good to know that our our sin does not mean that God rejects us and that God can no longer use us. We need this renewal Because as the people of God, God has work to do through us. We've all failed. We've all sinned. We've all struggled. And I think we have the tendency to keep going back to our identity that we have maybe crafted for ourselves in our sin. We can often define ourselves by our sin. But we need to be reminded that that is no longer who we are if we are in Christ Jesus. If we are God's people, the Bible says, listen, all of your sin, everything you've done, everything you've tried to define yourself by, and such were some of you, but that's no longer who you are. Why? Because you've been washed, you've been cleansed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified. You have been made a new person in Christ. Listen, if, if you're in Christ today, you have a new name. It is not your sin. It is not, listen, your reputation in the world. It is not the name you want to craft for yourself. It is Christian, Christ follower. You are defined by the fact that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. And if that is true, you have been given a new purpose to reach the world with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's who we are. We're people who have been called and transformed so that we can be used to advance the plans of God. And so that's why we need this constant renewal. I met with somebody this past week who uh, was telling me that for a season in their life, as a Christian, legitimate Christian, as a Christian, they, they were just living in sin, And what they were able to diagnose is that there were idols in their life that they were clinging to. By the way, one of the indicators that idolatry has a hold of your heart is that you are no longer living for the purposes of God, okay? That is one of the clearest indicators that there is idols in your heart. You no longer live for the purposes of God. You live for the purpose of another God. But as a result, this this man said to me that his life was beginning to reflect the life of an unbeliever. 
The more he was clinging to, to the idol in his life, the more and more his life began to resemble the life of an unbeliever. And he looked back in retrospect and he could see it so clearly. He was worshiping his idols, trying to get from them what only God could give. And not until he acknowledged that and repented of that could he then worship the Lord. And his response was that he sensed this renewed calling both to worship the Lord, to serve the Lord, and to go into the world and tell people about Jesus. This is, this is what he said. He just said, as I, as, I, as I let go of the idol, as I confessed it for what it was, as I started to worship the Lord, all of a sudden it's like God, God renewed in me this hunger and thirst for him and this desire to start actually telling people about Jesus. And Christian, this is so often the way it works. Do you ever wonder why there isn't much of a desire to tell people about Jesus? Do you ever wonder why it, it's so difficult sometimes in your life to have any kind of spiritual conversation Often that's because we, we talk about what we most love, what we most desire, what we tend to worship. So part of the way to just, just listen to yourself talk. You're like, you want to put the finger on maybe the idol. Of your, just listen to what you talk most about. Listen to what excites you most. Listen to what you're passionate about. And I'm not saying those things are, are in and of themselves sinful. But what I'm saying is that when they begin to take the place of God, they become an idol in your life. And that, therefore, makes it sinful. And so often, we begin to live more Christ-like when we simply begin to worship the Lord. Spiritual renewal is essential for advancing the mission. And in the New Testament, this, this language of being fruitful and multiply, it's fulfilled in this fuller sense through the gospel. Paul says in Colossians 1 verse 6 that they are bearing fruit and growing. The gospel is bearing fruit and growing amongst them. That's this be fruitful and multiply language. As followers of Christ, we must seek to carry out the great commission to make disciples, baptizing and teaching them to observe everything that Jesus has commanded us in his word. That is what it now looks like to be fruitful and multiply in the greatest sense of that. Spiritual renewal for us and as a result for those are dead who are dead in their trespasses and sin. That's what we're aiming for. I, I wanna just take a moment to let you know, uh, I, think it's, I think it's fair to say we're living in a kind of post-Christian age. But I think a lot of us have come to believe that the world out there is so antagonistic to the gospel that they're almost beyond reach. And can I just, can I burst that bubble for you today? I think, listen, I think the fields are whiter than ever. The harvest is riper than ever for the gospel to go forth. Here's the key, the laborers are few. We, we think that we think that there's, people are just going to shut us down when we talk about Jesus. How do you know? Have you talked to somebody about Jesus recently? Do you know what I keep finding? I, I'm, I'm dead serious. I keep finding there is a willingness on the part of unbelievers to have spiritual conversations right now. Perhaps greater than anything I've ever experienced in my Christian life. I'm not facing strong antagonism when I open my mouth to talk about Jesus. You know that? I'm, I'm hearing curiosity. I'm, I'm seeing people who are isolated and alone and confused. And then all of a sudden, we come along and we talk about life and hope and community and faith and joy. And people are like, tell me a little bit more about that. I just, can I just encourage you? Please, please do not keep silent. Please trust that God wants to use you as you open your mouth to have conversations with people. I believe, listen, that we may have been casting our net for a long while and coming up empty, and Jesus is like, just cast it on the other side with a little bit of faith in me and watch. Watch how the nets are so full that will burst. Wouldn't that be an awesome reality if all God's people would have that kind of faith to continue to fulfill the great commission as he has called us to do? I just want to encourage you, this, is, this season is really, really unique on the calendar. And for whatever reason, Christmas and Easter still remain an incredible time to tell people about Jesus. I read a book called The Great Dechurching recently. And in this book, this guy, he, he looks at a number of different categories of people who have maybe walked out of the church, left, left the faith, so to speak, ex-evangelicals. But one of the things he says, you know, and, and he's not trying to say that they're all necessary believers, but the data, the, one of the most remarkable things he pointed out to me was this. He said this, that, that out of the thousands of people surveyed, 
something around 90% of the people who had left the church said that they would come back in an instant if somebody would just invite them. Just one person invite them. I just, I just wanna encourage you. Let's take advantage of the opportunity that God has given us to invite people to come to church, invite people into our homes, invite people to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly, renewal requires reversal. And I just wanna highlight three ways we see this. This is more um, observation than it is application. This is a, uh, an interesting portion of the text, and it kind of brings to a close the, 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 the Jacob cycle in the book of Genesis. We're not gonna hear much about Jacob from this point out, but we are supposed to glean some aspects of renewal, and I think through this idea of reversal. There are a series of tragedies in this section that point to a series of reversals. The first one is a sorrow to joy. Sorrow to joy. Look at verse 16 to 21. Then they journeyed from Bethel when they were still some distance from Ephrath. Rachel went into labor and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, do not fear for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died. She was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, where, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. Rachel, his beloved wife, she dies in the process of giving birth and in the midst of death, it's so fascinating, in the midst of death she brings forth life. And the name that she gives to her son means son of sorrow. But almost instantly it appears Jacob changes it to Benjamin, which means son of my right hand or son of favor. You see, the right hand throughout scripture is the position of primacy, of preeminence and strength. It's associated with good fortune. And so Jacob changes the child's name in order to pronounce the exact opposite of what Rachel had spoken, son of sorrow is changed to son of joy. There is a sense here in which we see that renewal flows from understanding these redemptive reversals that sorrow will often break forth into joy, that as one generation comes to a close, the promises of God remain and will move forward into the next. This idea, this reversal is seen frequently in Scripture. Sorrow of sin, for example, leads to joy of salvation. Jesus is the man of sorrows who endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. Jesus, in John 16, verse 19 and following, says that he knew that they wanted to ask him, speaking of his disciples. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. We need to be reminded that the sorrow of death can lead us to the joy of living. And maybe by way of some kind of application, I would say to you that you need to embrace the fact that you will one day die. The scriptures make much of the idea that it's better to go into the house of mourning than into the house of mirth, right? Better to stare death in the face frequently instead of constantly numbing yourself with a party. And the reason is very obvious because when you understand that you will die, you can then truly live. And you can live for what matters. 
I want to encourage you to live like you're going to die so that you can live. Secondly, here we see strength to weakness. Verses 22 through 26 is an interesting episode. It kind of almost feels like we're moving in the wrong direction here again. It says, while Israel lived in the land, Reuben, which is his oldest son, went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. He goes on to, to list the sons of Jacob were 12, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. And here's this, this bizarre situation where, where Rachel is gone and all of a sudden Reuben goes and, and has this, this kind of adulterous affair with Bilhah. So what's going on here? Well, remember, Reuben is the firstborn to Leah, and as the firstborn to the first wife, he has every claim to lay status to the firstborn of Jacob. It's a big deal, especially in the ancient world. So Jacob, uh, by the way, also he marries his, uh, Leah's sister Rachel, right? And her servant Bilhah is then given to Jacob for the purpose of producing more children. That's what we see in, the, again, the line of, of Jacob here. We know that Jacob favors Rachel, so what is Reuben doing with sleeping with Bilhah? Here's what he's doing, okay? He is shaming his father, and he's laying claim to priority in the family structure. Remember when, when David was on the run from his son Absalom? And Absalom, in his revolt against David, he gets this, this counsel from Ahithophel, and Ahithophel counsels him to sleep with his father's concubines in the presence of all Israel. In other words, make a public spectacle of this. Why? Because you are asserting dominance and control. You are showing that you are the one in charge. Reuben is essentially declaring to his father, Jacob, father, your time is over. It's my time. It's my time. And this is immoral, and it is sinful. And according to Leviticus 20.11, both of these individuals will be, would be put to death under the law of God. And it's interesting that Jacob does nothing in this situation. But what Reuben doesn't realize in wanting to lay claim to the birthright and blessing of his father is that his assertion of power to receive the blessing will ultimately bring about a curse. In fact, in Genesis 49, when Jacob is dying and blessing his children, it says this about Reuben, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it. He went up to my couch. He is actually thinking he's gaining the blessing but is instead receiving a curse. It was a, a premature claim that backfired on him greatly. First Chronicles 5.1 says this, Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel. You see, what God does is he gives us this beautiful picture of a redemptive reversal. You cannot seize the blessings of God by human engineering and human strength. In fact, when you try to assert strength, and to accomplish the blessing of God in your own power, you will fail every time. God gives his blessing to the weak. He gives his blessing to the lesser. It's not human strength that leads to God's renewal. It is a recognition and embracing of our weakness. We must come into the blessing God's way by grace through faith not by works so that no one can boast. Renewal always comes through humble receiving, not prideful seizing. Lastly, renewal requires reversal, and we see that in death to life. Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, 
where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Isaac dies, Jacob and Esau bury him, It's presented almost the exact way as the burial of Abraham by Isaac and Ishmael. And what we're supposed to see here is that, yes, there is a death. Yes, a patriarch is gone. Isaac dies, listen, but Joseph lives. Deborah and Rachel die, but Judah lives along with the other brothers. The idols die, but Yahweh lives, and that is the foundation of our hope. The picture at the end here is that though death is a reality, death does not have the final say. Death does not win. Death will not cancel out the promise of God. In fact, the Bible is leading us to that final reversal and full renewal of all things. The promised seed of Genesis 3.15, who will crush the head of the serpent, is a promise that death will not prevail. Jesus, in John 12.24, says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a seed falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the great redemptive reversal of the Bible and in all the universe. Jesus, the promised seed of the woman, dies and then comes to life so that we might die to self and live to Christ. If you want spiritual renewal, there are deaths you must face and funerals you must attend. You must look at what he's done, face the death of Jesus, and then attend your own funeral. Then face the resurrected Christ and live for the glory and honor of the Son. God gives us renewed life to the one who died and conquered the grave, the one who lives now and lives forevermore. And one day, he's coming back again. And all who have died will be raised to newness of life to live in a renewed new heavens and a new earth where righteousness will dwell for all eternity. Let's pray. God, we thank you for all that you've done to overcome sin and death. We thank you for what you have done to bring us from death to life. We we want to be renewed in that life today that we might live for you now. And so, God, we, we ask, we pray that you would help us to walk in newness of life now so that you might receive glory and honor now and forevermore. God, we thank you and we praise you. And we pray, Lord, that you would renew us even now through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his powerful and precious name we pray. Amen.